Looks like we're going to break a 124-year-old temp record because uh, we're going to get up in the 60s today. And this is just a warning for you as a mom because mm-hmm. Lloyd and I have – this is the day when your child, you're going to put a coat on them and you're going to send them to school. The coat will not come home. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. right? Yes. This- I see that, but I'm still in daycare phase, so the daycare lady, shout out Miss Donna. She'll send it to him. No, to me. this is the day that the lost and found at the school oh, will be overflowing. overflowing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things. But it was a nice walk this morning with Sasha oh, this morning, man. It was a nice walk, man. I'm you know? sure Sasha had a lovely walk. Took had a lovely walk with her owner. Took, yes, she did. took her owner for a lovely walk. She took walk. me for a lovely walk. Yes, yeah. Um, last night. Sometime around 8 o'clock, hastily arranged news conference. Uh, The President of the United States going ballistic over this uh, classified documents report coming from Special Counsel Robert Hur, who did not spare the President at all. Uh, For those that want to talk about the the DOJ being politicized and all that, well, you got to look at this and say he didn't spare the president anything except when it comes to prosecution. Rem- remembering the president can't be prosecuted anyway. He's a sitting He's president, president, right? Yeah. But it said they uncovered evidence that the president willfully retained and disclosed. Remember, they said, well, you know, it's different than Trump because he didn't know that they were there. And we gave them up immediately. Well, that is true. But he did know they were there mm-hmm. because in 2017, he had an interview with his ghostwriter where he said... And they've got tapes of this, this conversation, where Biden says to his ghostwriter, he, quote, just found all the classified stuff downstairs. Oh, so you you knew knew. it was there. And more importantly, you knew it was classified. So how do you, and, and yet he says, I was a model citizen in this investigation. As you know, the special counsel released his findings today on a new United States senator. And the special counsel acknowledged I cooperated completely. I did not throw up any roadblocks. I sought no delays. In fact, I was so determined to give the special counsel what he needed, I went forward with a five-hour in-person, five-hour in-person interview over two days on October the 8th and 9th of last year, even though Israel had just been attacked by Hamas on the 7th, and I was very occupied. I'm sorry, guys. He wasn't cooperative. He dragged his feet for months. The special counsel had to cool his heels for months waiting for the interview with the president. So the fact that he was very cooperative and didn't put up roadblocks, BS. Um, that's Biden. stands for Biden stuff. Um, the, the special counsel goes on to say, In his interview, this is a quote, with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, and forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. He did not remember even within several years when his son, Bo, died. Now, there are a lot of folks saying that was unfair. This is a political document. You've gone into something now where you are just beating up on the president. Barb McQuaid was on MSNBC, the former U.S. attorney. Mm -hmm. She says, no, that's relevant. And if you look at her document in total, things like that are part of the context, but it's fact-based and it is relevant about the cooperativeness of the witness. But boy, was Biden defiant about that. It's none of their damn business. Let me tell you something. Some of you have commented, I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from our lady of... 
pretty emotional. Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him, attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away. No, sir, you don't. But spare me your indignation because on multiple times you have forgotten how he died. Telling Gold Star families that he died in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. He didn't die on the battlefield in Afghanistan. He died of cancer. And I'm sure it's crushing and I have nothing but the utmost sympathy for him. And I'm, I'm sure the burden that he carries. But don't spare me your indignation about that because you've willfully lied about how he died when you're trying to curry favor with, with certain groups. And finally, um, he's right. The, the way he handled the documents, he was more forthcoming. And yes, Trump did. He's facing a pretty severe obstruction charge, so these things are different. But since when do we avoid prosecuting people because they're old? Which is what the special counsel is saying here, that he would be an, a very sympathetic defendant. <clears throat> he doesn't think a jury would convict beyond a reasonable doubt. Is that the standard now? When someone is this reckless with our nation's secrets? Just, it's, uh, you know, you've just given a lot of ammo to the folks on the Trump side saying you're running a double standard. Mm -hmm. And they will say that, and I think they're going to be partially right. My argument is you should charge them both. Because these are people that are dying for that intelligence and those secrets. And you endanger them when you behave this recklessly. Um, very thorny meeting with Biden officials yesterday here locally. Yeah, community leaders and Palestinian Americans recently met with uh, top White House advisors in Dearborn. That was yesterday to discuss the administration's handling of the Hamas-Israel conflict. Abbas Alawa is uh, of the Listen to Michigan group. He described the emotional nature of the meetings, noting tears and some heated exchanges. Quite frankly, you know, at, at some moments it felt like there was some sympathy, at others it didn't. But regardless, what we're looking for from President Biden is not sympathy. We're looking for action. We're looking for him to stop funding the killing. That sound courtesy of Local 4. While some attendees pleaded for action to evacuate family members from Gaza, others like Alloway urged the immediate halt to hostilities and an end to financial support for what they termed genocide. The advisors reportedly listened but did not commit to specific actions. Alloway and the others in Arab American and Muslim communities have stated they will not support President Biden in future elections if a ceasefire is not called swiftly. And they're calling on uh, their followers to to put in uncommitted on their primary ballot to to, to have a write-in candidate whose name is uncommitted. Um, Did you get a chance to hear any of the oral arguments yesterday in the Trump-Colorado case? Yes. What did you think? It sure seems like they're sort of united in that they don't believe this is right for the country, for one state to make a decision. Yeah, it was interesting that they weren't talking about what is a critical issue about whether or not Trump engaged in supporting an an insurrection, but they were looking at the larger picture. Mm -hmm. A lot of the headlines this morning are saying Trump and his lawyers won. We've got to quit defining everything between the Trumps and the non-Trumps. I think voters won yesterday. Absolutely. Democracy won yesterday. People like Elena Kagan asking some important questions, as Jamie pointed out. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it. It sounds awfully national to me. 
They're looking for a way to put him back on the ballot, but I think it's going to be they're looking for a very narrow road. Mm-hmm. They're looking for these off ramps where they don't have to talk about Trump and his role in January 6th. Instead, looking at uh, Gorsuch asked if, you know, is it the running for the office or holding of the office? And the others are looking yeah. at the, the one state making a decision over the national opinion. So it's like not talking about Trump. Gorsuch beat up the Colorado attorney pretty well yesterday because he asked a hypothetical and the guy kept trying to change the hypothetical. And he finally says, all right, knock it off. (laughs) It was we got a good talking to Alito also brought I mean, it to show that it's a conservative as well as a liberal concern. He said, look, if we do this, won't it be someone else in the pot the next time? And then another state's going to retaliate by saying, well, then we're kicking Biden off the ballot. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very interesting. A lot of interesting takeaways uh, from the Pistons yesterday. Do we know who played? By the way, they've won two in a row. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. So there are all the, these flurries. What side of the apocalypse? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> flurries of activity yesterday, the biggest being the number seven overall pick in 2020, Killian Hayes, just waved. He was the first selection by Troy Weaver in 2020. Uh, he's gone, and so that leaves only Isaiah Stewart from the 2020 draft class left on the team. Now, the Pistons were busy. They sent a second-round pick to the 76ers, got a 2024 second-round pick, got Daniel House Jr. They traded Bogdanovich and Alec Burks to the Knicks, got a bunch of players in that trade, including Quentin Grimes, and like I said, they waived a bunch of players, including Hayes. They didn't have that many players to even play the game yesterday. They had to call two they players were, from the G League up. Right. They were oh, one wow. over. So they had nine players. The bare minimum, right? The league minimum is eight. And they erased a 23-point third-quarter deficit and defeated the Portland Trailblazers in overtime 128-122. Wow. Bring on those G Bring League those, guys. Yes. More of them. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I mean. In the meantime, and we're running over here, but a, a, a snub to, to Dan Campbell yesterday. And, and hats off to C.J. Stroud and, and Joe Flacco sure, sure, and some whatever, of the guys whatever. that won. Um, <laughs> uh, Dan Campbell didn't win Coach of the Year, and it wasn't even close. He led the Lions to 14 wins, earned just three first-place votes, and finished with 33 points. You know who won? Kevin Stefanski, who tied with D'Amico Ryans uh, with 165 points. And Stefanski won because he got more first-place votes. It is a thorny Friday morning here on uh, JR Morning. Uh, yeah. Oh, much more ahead. We're going to be talking with an important case in Warren, but it has other implications. The get tough, zero tolerance posture taken by law enforcement there over student threats to schools. Warren Police Commissioner Bill Dwyer next on JR Morning at uh, 619. There have been some recent events in Warren schools that have raised concerns. A teacher at Lois C. Carter Middle School made a startling discovery. A sixth grade student had a death list containing 14 names in a notebook. Plus, there was another incident that occurred at Chatterton Middle School on the same day. On the JR Morning Live line to walk us through what unfolded is Warren Police Commissioner Bill Dwyer. Commissioner Dwyer, good morning. Oh, good morning. How are you? We're good this morning. You know, in the wake of what happened at Oxford and 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 the shootings around the country, you you know, you really just got to be on top of situations like this. Fill us in on what happened. Well, first of all, these are probably the most difficult times uh, to be going to school. I mean, the um, students in school they they fear for their safety now, and uh, it's something that uh, is out of control. I mean, I can go back to Sandy Hook. You recall that back in uh, 2012 mm-hmm. when there was. 26 people murdered, and uh, 20 of them were uh, young people between the six, between six and seven years old. 
what we're having here in, in this country is is something that's got to get. We have to have better control. The parents have to sit down with the you know, young people, their daughters and sons. But what we have, as far as here, uh, just recently, is a 13-year-old student that uh, was just charged yesterday with a 10-year felony uh, when he made death threats against uh, another student. Uh, the count is an intentional threat to commit an act of violence against a school, school employees, or students with intent to carry out an overt act, and he's been remanded to the uh, youth home now, and his court date is coming up. So that's the one. The other is the uh, death list. That's a female, 11 years old. Uh, she's been suspended and is pending a mental health examination. Uh, the mother is cooperating uh, with the investigation. Uh, but getting to mental health issues, it's a major concern. Uh, children are struggling with mental health, though we've seen it in the uh, in a lot of different cases, including just the recent uh, conviction of the mother of the uh, shooter uh, that was found guilty of the involuntary manslaughter. Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at it, violence in schools is dramatically increased, and um, parents have to you know, communicate better with their sons and daughters and sit down with them and pay attention to any obvious signs that, of uh, behavior uh, changes. Uh, Mr. Commissioner, it must be such a fine line from people who ignored what was going on with the shooter in Oxford and it led to what it did to what happened with just a middle schooler and how his whole life now is different. But you certainly took it very seriously, this threat. Well, we take you know all of these uh, very seriously. I mean, uh, uh, threatening violence uh, obviously is uh, out of control. And last year was the highest incidence of school shootings in the history. With 83, there was 83 different in, uh, cases in the United States where 40-some people were murdered. Uh, that includes uh, teachers and students, and that's the highest ever. So you can see that something has to be done. I think the parents have to be held responsible, and they are in the uh, recent conviction uh, in the Crumley case. Uh, they got to be accountable, and the parents got to pay attention, and also the schools. The school administrators are are doing a pretty fair job, but I think that they can improve too. But we immediately uh, make this a priority on any threats that come in. And we work very closely with the prosecutor in um, Macomb County, uh, Prosecutor Lucido. He's uh, uh, with us on these efforts and mm -hmm. uh, we'll continue to get the word out that uh, there's no zero tolerance as far as uh, when the threats are made. I, I recently, just last night, seen the uh, parents of the 13-year-old uh, going on saying, well, they shouldn't have charged my son this and that. Well, uh, shame on them because they're not paying attention and well, we yeah. may have prevented a, a major, major massacre. And that's my question, Bill. And by the way, it's good to hear the sound of your voice. It's been too long. Um, good morning, guy. It's good morning. Look, um, all credit to the mother who is cooperating. But I guess yes. my other part of it is why did it take a hit list for us to figure out that this girl was in crisis? Were there other signs that were missed? Well, absolutely, they were missed. I mean, they were missed probably by uh, the parents, and they were missed probably or maybe by the school administrators, uh, just like in the uh, in the Crumbly case. Um, those parents weren't paying attention, and you know, and now they're being held accountable. She's convicted of involuntary manslaughter, and uh, but the, the concern too is that it's going to continue. I mean, uh, you're going to see more shootings in schools. You're going to see more neglect by parents not paying attention. And uh, all we can do as far as law enforcement is, is try to get the message out that we're not going to tolerate it. We're going to have zero tolerance, and we're going to move forward with uh, felony 
warrants and convictions. Uh, uh, Commissioner, the one child who got into a fight and said he was going to come back, you know, to the school with a gun and came back with a weapon. Do we know where the weapon came from? Well, that morning, uh, we uh, immediately, once we found out, went to the home uh, of the student and uh, the uh, parents, uh, the mother was cooperative. She said, you can search the home. The father uh, was not cooperative. He says, no, you're not searching the home. And by the way, I'm not going to name it, but the father's been convicted of several felonies, uh, serious felonies, and served time in prison. But we did get a search warrant, and we did recover the 9-millimeter loaded gun. And uh, based on that and based on the statement made by the uh, 13-year-old himself, uh, he was charged uh, appropriately, I should say. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I can hear in your voice that you're just exacerbated by what's going on in schools right now. Do you think the red flag laws, the safe storage laws, will make any difference or what happened to Mrs. Crumbly make any difference? You know that's a good question. I'm not. I'm not real confident. I think in the uh, in the Crumley case, I, I think that uh, some parents say, you know, I don't want to condemn all parents. I mean, uh, probably 98% of the parents out there are doing a great job. They're paying attention. They're they're looking at any signs or signals that you know there's distress or maybe mental illness uh, uh, attached to their son or daughter. But uh, you know, we just got to continue. I think the parents really have to sit down and they got to pay attention to any changes in behavior and. Uh, talk to them and listen to them, and, uh, and the schools have to do the same thing. Uh, uh, we have school resource officers in all our high schools and middle schools in Warren, and they prevent a lot of different uh, situations that could lead to you know, a major incident involving uh, shooting or whatever. Commissioner Dwyer, Commissioner Dwyer, thank you so much for being here. Keep up the great work in Warren. Appreciate you. Appreciate it very much. Okay. Thank you. A lot of takeaways for parents this week when it comes to accountability for their actions of their children and more and more districts showing zero tolerance for that kind of threatening behavior. When we come back, a vexing question. What is the real economic condition for the city of Detroit? We hear a lot of the good news. We're kind of all caught up in the halo effect. But how are we doing really And in terms of economic development policies, which ones are giving us the best bang for the buck? An important report coming to us from one of the most unbiased sources, the Citizens Research Council, next on JR. It is so easy to get caught up in the hype, and it's a good thing. I mean, we have watched the Midtown Miracle, the billions of dollars invested in Midtown. We have watched the book Cadillac rise from the ashes, two new stadiums downtown. And it's we're tempted to say, well, Detroit is back. 10 years after the bankruptcy. But are we really? We need a little objectivity because we are cheerleaders in a number of ways. The Citizens Research Council of Michigan has released the first of a two-part series, truly objectively assessing and analyzing our economic condition in the city and our development policies. Eric Lufer is the president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, nonpartisan, and uh, we welcome Eric in for that very unique perspective. Hi, Eric. Good morning. Great to be with you again. So kind of give us just the, you know, the the executive summary in terms of where we are. Yes. Yeah, so compared to where the city was 10 years ago, clearly things are better. Uh, on the upward trajectory in terms of income and uh, jobs and things like that. But there's a long way to go. Just because there's improvement doesn't mean the city is necessarily competitive either with its neighboring suburban communities 
or with its peers in the Midwest. So uh, a lot of work to do, but we don't want to couch that in bad news, just, uh, you know, a, a reality check on where the city is. Eric, what, what, what are some of the specific challenges that developers face in, in Detroit? It, so we were asked by the city to look at this, and the question before us was, does the city continue to need to provide tax abatements to developers coming in, uh, providing industrial or commercial? And what we found is that there's an inequality between the cost of constructing or being in the city and the projected revenues to be here. So some of the costs are costs that the city creates. Anytime a, uh, a business is coming in and they want to build, they're using tax abatements. The city says you have to negotiate these collect these community benefit agreements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to hire local talent. You have to deal with the stormwater mitigation. And by the way, you're going to have to pay the uh, city taxes. But there's also some things that are beyond the city's control. Uh, Detroit is not the only one levying taxes on the on the residents of the city, the businesses in the city. Wayne County and the Detroit schools and others are doing that, and that contributes to a very high tax rate to be in the city. Any developer is going to have to deal with the, the labor cost, and rest assured in Detroit you're going to be using union labor. That costs a little bit more. It costs a lot more to insure uh, businesses in the city. And um, because there's a legacy as an industrial city, a lot of sites that you might want to build on are going to require environmental cleanup first. Mm-hmm. All those things add to the cost. And then on the other side of it, it's the question of how much revenue do you think you're going to get from this? And for all the good things going on in Detroit, there just is not a, that much demand to be in the city. You, you would compare that to New York or Boston and places like that, that there's huge demand to be in the downtown, be in the central city. And that's just not happening yet in Detroit. And now we are post-pandemic where a lot of businesses are shrinking their footprint, needing less space. So with less demand, there's less increases in prices and it, the projected revenues don't meet the high cost of being in the city. Uh, Eric, part of the release here talks about population steadily declining. Uh, the population peaked in 1950 at 1.8 million, has fallen each decade since 637,000 in 2022. Could you see that reversing when it comes to all of the apartments and living spaces that are being built downtown? Well, that's the goal. And, and eventually, if we're going to do anything about demand, we have to reverse that. Um, so part of the problem, you might say, well, Detroit has fixed all these problems and, and people want to be in the city. Where are you going to put them? So we've got to build houses. We've got to build condos, uh, townhouses, apartments for them to be in if you're going to reverse that trend. Um, it, certainly that's the goal. And if we're successful, then there is a, a hope to bend the curve and, and start it pointing up again with more people moving in. Um, it's, it's, if you do, if you don't build it, they can't come. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't a lot of the uh, office space downtown that's not really being used, isn't a lot of that being turned into residential? There's a lot of talk of that. Um, 
it's not an easy thing to do. Um, there's different uh, requirements for residential, and, and so you have to retrofit it, mm -hmm. and there's cost to doing that. But, yeah, we see that not only in Detroit, but in a lot of other big cities, the realism that we probably, not in our lifetimes, we're not going to go back to the way it was. So how do we use that space as productively as possible? So there, there is a lot of talk of doing that, but that's not going to happen overnight. We've talked about competitiveness in terms of developers. I'm more interested in terms of competitiveness for homeowners. We have seen a flurry of reinvestment in, in different neighborhoods, which has been really encouraging. But, I mean, you used to be able to go on the website and compare the millage rates of Southfield, Royal Oak, near-in suburbs, and then compare it to the services they get. Their streetlights were on. Their garbage got picked up. That wasn't always the case in Detroit. On those basics, return on an investment for a taxpayer with, with efficient city services, how are we doing? Doing better, but, again, still work to do. So part of the problem for Detroit is, as I said, some of it's beyond the city's control. If you were to just look at operating taxes for the city, the schools, the county, and so on, Detroit would be high, but it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. But Detroit, the city levies debt millage. It has a, a lot of legacy debt, even after the bankruptcy 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the school district has a huge debt. So it is an extraordinarily high cost to be in the city just to pay the property taxes. And then you have the income taxes on top of that. Um, so it's a very high cost. And I don't say this in any way to diminish the police and fire or everything else they're doing above and beyond given the conditions they have to, to work in. But the return on investment is a very high bar to, you know, to get over given that very high cost. Um, so to, Part of the problem or part of the solution for dealing with the tax abatements, for dealing with the, um, the DDA that we also talk about in the paper, is the city just has to be really good at the blocking and tackling. Mm -hmm. they, have to, they have to be really good at public safety. They have to have good parks and walkable streets and garbage picked up and things like that. That will increase the demand for wanting to be in the city that return on investment that you say right um it has to be there for there to to be a demand to be in the city right because make no mistake when you look at detroit's population and a, a grant i know that's a very sore point with the mayor and I, I agree that we're probably not assessing it properly but folks were voting with their feet and and that was you know and that doesn't help your fiscal picture either eric we appreciate the incredibly objective uh, viewpoint that the citizens research council of michigan takes we want to remind folks if you want to di you know, dive deep into this you can find it at crcmich.org crcmich.org eric thank you for your time have a great weekend you too thanks for having me on again all right when we come back ford taking the lead on some really cool things at Ford Field that's got nothing to do with football, but a lot about life. We'll explore it. A good feel-good story for you on your Friday here on JR Morning. Time for Automotive Views, brought to you by Bridgestone. Getting people down the road matters, but getting generations down them, that's what really matters. Bridgestone, visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. The Super Bowl is coming up this weekend, and only four auto brands, none based in Detroit, have said they will run ads in this year's big game. 
The NFL's championship is the biggest advertising event of the year, but as prices keep rising, automakers have dialed back their involvement. Ford CEO Jim Farley, who started out in marketing, famously said to quote, sell the stock if Ford ever runs an EV ad during a Super Bowl. To be fair, the automakers are all facing a profit margin squeeze compared with COVID times, as well as higher priced labor contracts with the UAW and Unifor. Stellantis has cut a lot of marketing spending in recent months, while GM and Ford are both actively seeking cost reductions. Plus, none of the Detroit Three really have hot new products to tout this winter. The Lions got within 30 minutes of making the championship game, but again this year, there will be no Detroit at the Super Bowl. With this week's Automotive View, I'm Jamie Butters, host of the Daily Drive podcast and executive editor of Automotive News. Pretty cool event tomorrow at Ford Field. The Ford manufacturing team is leading a fundraiser for the Crohn's and Colitis at Ford Field with a flag football event the day before the Super Bowl. Ford has participated in this event since 2016, and it's just grown over the years. On the phone with us this morning is Theron McGee, North American Ford Production Systems Manager. Good morning. Uh, so this is a really fun event with a great message, right? And is am I correct that you have a personal connection to it? I most certainly do. First of all, I want to thank you. I'm happy to be here this morning. Not only do I have a personal connection, I have the disease itself, and to know that there's foundations to help is inspiring. And have Ford Motor Company lead the way just even is more magnificent. So this year, not only do I get a chance to be around people that enjoy the event, they're also supportive of people with Crohn's and colitis disease. And you, before this event started, never wanted to talk about it, but this sort of makes it out in the open and okay to discuss and and commiserate with others. Yeah, I was inspired by the stories of others. And when people don't understand when you withdraw or can't participate in events, sometimes people worry. And to relieve that worry, it felt good to be able to tell others my story, the battle with the condition, there's so many other people with the condition that I didn't wear was aware of that were scared to talk about it. And now we could talk about it in the open and then have the support of our family and friends around us. At Ford Motor Company, I was inspired by a story by one of our former vice presidents. And I contacted him personally to thank him for telling his story. And that's what inspired me to tell mine. Ron, who plays in the in the game, in the flag football game? It's interesting that you say that. We're going to have people very young to some near 60 playing in the event. So it'll be all Ford family, friends, connections, sponsors, volunteers. It's just a wonderful event. The flag football event just is a fun and exciting occasion, and the many activities that goes around with it will just make it a fun-filled day right before the Super Bowl. Yeah, because 60 is pretty young, too, just saying. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, I'm one of the ones that's near 60. Yeah. We, we, see, Theron, we got to call ourselves veteran players, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> just t- take us inside life just a little, just a little bit, because uh, this has touched my family, a number of branches of my family, and... Um, we do need to talk about it because it's something that's a touching a lot more people than we probably are aware of, and it is a daily challenge. It is a daily challenge, and it's real, every day is different. 
It's not that you can prepare for it the same day. I have to follow a strict schedule. I start at 3 in the morning getting my routine together. It takes me a couple of hours just to get started, moving, motivated, because there's other conditions that go along with the illness. And most people have multiple illnesses as a result of the disease itself that affects the eyes, the joints. It's just so many things, the entire body. It upsets the immune system as well. So having family and friends know about it, being understanding, can help, support, I mean, it's just magnificent. Are there some treatments? I know there's not a cure, but are there some treatments on the horizon that could be life-changing for people like you? Yes, there's many treatments. Some are disease-modifying drugs that people take, and uh, some of them are oral. But that with due to Crohn's Colitis Foundation, they're still researching, and the, the, every year there's different things that come out to help with the condition. Uh, this year, four team members have already raised $104,000. Happy Friday, everybody. You made it to the end of uh, what was a pretty consequential week, uh, heavy week news-wise. And, uh, Very heavy. We'll apologize a little bit up front. It's kind of heavy this morning, but we're going to keep the Friday vibe going. Uh, we talked about that great event happening at Ford Field that you can take part in uh, for Crohn's and colitis. And uh, what, do you have the website on that again? Uh, we'll get Crohn's, it. Crohn's, yeah. I'll look it up. Yeah, because yeah, we want to make sure that we let people know about that throughout the morning. Uh, meantime, I uh, hope you've got big plans this weekend. I think all of us are kind of like in, in the meh zone when it comes to the Super Bowl. I thought, I can't remember, was you or Renee said, maybe we just put a lion's helmet on top of the TV and pretend they're playing. That's it. I think that's good for the soul uh, while we're woofing down the buffalo dip. (laughs) Dan Um, Campbell said watch it, for his players at least, and get motivation. So if they can do it, we all can do it. It, That's I think that's an important exercise. And by the way, it's Crohn's Colitis Foundation, all one, dot org. Right. An important event to support, and you can do that with your donations online. Um, Democrat, quoted on, uh, by NBC News, calling it a nightmare. Special counsel's assessment of Biden's mental fitness triggers Democratic panic. That this characterization of him as a doddering old man who couldn't remember when he started his tenure as vice president, couldn't remember when he ended it, couldn't remember within several years uh, his son's death, uh, Biden reacting bitterly and defiantly about that, but saying, hey, I cooperated and they found that I did nothing criminal. Well, not exactly. What they found is that you're so doddering that you would be a very sympathetic witness and that this would be hard to get a a jury uh, to convict you on a reasonable doubt. He was reckless. He was foolhardy. He shared it with his ghostwriter. Um, And said, not just, oh, these documents are in my garage. It was classified documents are in my garage. That was back in a recorded conversation in 2017. Here's the thing. Everybody's pointing to this and saying, well, this is evidence of his infirmity. And I don't dispute that. Was it also a legal strategy? Isn't this kind of like the classic mobster boss? I may have put a horse's head in his bed. I really don't remember. Isn't that kind of like, I mean, you and I have seen this defense employed in federal cases. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it may be evidence of incapacitation to some degree. It may be also evidence that he was covering his behind. Mm -hmm. But uh, nevertheless, causing a lot of consternation. Um, By the way, there was also uh, an earthquake in Florida. I don't think this is unrelated. 
I think it was Trump jumping up and down at Mar-a-Lago <laughs> going, yes, yes. Uh, because He still has a lot of court cases. Yeah. He does, but I'll celebrate. Yeah. But on that yeah. one, he can say, and he will say on the on the in his stump speech, there are two versions of the law here, and looky here. Yeah, uh, because it wasn't that they didn't charge him because there wasn't evidence. They didn't charge him because he thought he was going to be too sympathetic as defendants. And that shouldn't so, really be a reason. It really shouldn't that be. You That's don't. the the old no. man standard should not be employed here. Now he is the sitting president, so he wasn't going to be charged anyway. Right. But after he leaves office, listen, I think anybody that's reckless with our nation's secrets should be held to account. Just me. I you said they were classified, but it didn't say top secret. They didn't have the red on the corner. Right. And the truth here is that, you know, they did ask him back multiple times from Trump. And his response was to instruct some people to hide them, according to sworn testimony in the indictment. Mm-hmm. So we'll see where that shakes out. It isn't an it is an apple and an orange to some degree, but they're both rotting fruit. Yeah. Bottom yes. line. I love yeah. Good analogy. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we've got some relief coming from folks that dealt with those horrible floods back in August. Yeah. President, Better late than never. Well, maybe. Yeah. Well, President Joe Biden he's authorized significant disaster relief for Michigan counties affected by severe weather last summer. Tornadoes, flooding, and severe thunderstorms wreaked havoc across Kent, Ionia, Ingham, Eaton, Livingston, Oakland, Wayne, Monroe, and Macomb counties from August 24th through the 26th of last year. The White House has announced that federal funding will be allocated to these counties following the declaration yesterday. The funding may come in the form of grants for home repair, short-term housing assistance, loans for uninsured property loss, and more, with a focus on mitigating future hazards. Governor Whitmer expressing gratitude for the assistance. Federal Emergency Management Agency agents will work closely with affected counties to direct recovery programs. Community members and business owners affected by the August storms can apply for relief online or by contacting FEMA 800-621-3362. Let's hope that the response to your application for relief is handled more with more dispatch than I mean, the declaration. This was August that this happened, and now here we are in February, and I mean, you're just getting the Don't want to look a gift politician in the mouth, but you think that if it's a disaster response, you could respond be when the disaster is still fresh. Yeah. Um, by the way, Governor Whitmer floating a proposal yesterday that would increase what your uh, garbage hauler pays to dump by a factor of 13, a 13-fold increase in a tipping fee, dumping fee, um, she wants to raise money for um, green programs uh, to be more sustainable. I understand it, but 13 times more. And she says, well, this is what we need to do to be, you know, more ec- environmentally responsive. Well, well yeah, but... Wasn't it about crossing state lines and dumping and it's making also, sure people don't do that? It's also to discourage those. The 25% of the refuse that we are dumping here is coming in from out of state. Um, yeah. <clears throat> she wants to put a kibosh on that. Well, okay. But you're making the domestic folks, the local folks, the homegrown folks. The price goes up. Pay yep. the tab for that. Mm-hmm. So is it really a win-win? I think that's going to get some healthy debate. Uh, meantime, the Supreme Court fascinating debate yesterday it sure seems like the justices 
do not want one state to decide if a candidate is eligible for the ballot. It just seems that way in all of their questioning yesterday in oral arguments when we're talking about the 14th Amendment and this Trump case. And there were some probing questions about whether or not Trump is truly an official, whether what the definition of an insurrection is. But those were all kind of more on the back burner mm-hmm. about the larger issue of democracy and voters yeah. and disenfranchisement. Very little discussion about the January 6th assault. I think they want to stay away from that and they want to look at, is he an officer? And also the issue of running for office or in office. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Ketanji Brown, Justice, was among the liberals asking some kind of Trump-friendly questions. The thing that really is troubling to me is I totally understand your argument, but they were listing people that were barred and president is not there. Right. In the 14th Amendment, Section 3. In the text. In In the the text. text. If you're a textualist, the president wasn't there. So, um, you know. It's like they want to try to, if they come with a decision, they want it to be unanimous and not partisan. Unanimous and narrow. Yes. They don't want this to be a broad precedent-setting decision. And, And March 5th is Super Tuesday, and that's when Colorado goes to the polls. Uh, The legal legals say that they anticipate something uh, quickly by then. Uh, When we come back, endorsements for president coming from the Detroit News. Neither of the leading candidates, the front runners, getting the nod. We'll have our good friend Nolan Philly explain why next on JR Morning at 719. Meantime, time for WJR's Business Beat brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world. Here's Jeff Sloan to take us through the tech and startup community on WJR. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. Business is hard enough, but as most small business owners are well aware, in addition to all the challenges we face as business owners today, more and more attention is now having to unfortunately be paid to protecting our business from cyber attacks. And many would say that the type of attack feared most is known as a ransomware attack in which the bad guys effectively seize your key digital business assets, such as your website, customer accounts, financial records, and others, and require that you pay them a ransom in order to get those assets back. Of course, in the absence of getting them back, your business can be temporarily tied up or even permanently destroyed. And now new data from a recently published report from the cryptocurrency research firm known as Chainalysis shows that the problem is only getting worse as victims of hacking attacks paid out a record $1.1 billion to the bad guys in 2023 as ransom in exchange for a return of those digital assets seized by them. By way of comparison, $567 million was paid out in 2022. Chainalysis said this about their findings. 2023 marks a major comeback year for ransomware with record-breaking payments and a substantial increase in the scope and complexity of such attacks. What to do? Focus on shoring up your defenses from a technology standpoint by working with a qualified cybersecurity consulting firm Train your employees to be on the lookout for suspicious activity and to not engage in providing any company information to unknown sources. Lastly, consider getting cyber insurance to help deal with the costs should your business encounter such a nefarious attack. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. There's been a lot of news circulating out there since the last conversation we had with our next guest. The Detroit News has endorsed Nikki Haley for the Republican nomination, Dean Phillips for the Democratic nomination, 
for the uh, primary. The bipartisan border bill failed. The House failed to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas. Governor Whitmer released her budget. So it was time to bring back our good friend Nolan Finley, editorial page editor for the Detroit News, to get his take on these topics and more. Good morning, Nolan. Where do we start, Lloyd? I'm telling you, let's start off with President Joe Biden, who won't be charged for taking classified documents with him when he left the vice president's office, but the special counsel says his memory is not too good. And that press conference yesterday didn't really make things any better. Well, Robert Hur would have been, from Biden's perspective, been better off uh, charging him than this was what he did end up doing is delivering a death sentence for his political career. I, I don't know how he survives this. This played right into the worst fear voters have about Joe Biden, that he's not mentally up to the job anymore. And, I don't know why her went there in in this report. This was not a examination into his uh, mental acuity. This was about whether or not he committed a crime. And you know, for some reason, uh, the the special counsel uh, gave us a analysis of the president's mental condition. Uh, very, <laughs> this is very unusual, but it's it's got to be. A finally, uh, the straw that breaks this this presidency uh, in terms of of uh, you know Democrats have been trying to avoid this subject, are trying to trying to tiptoe around it, waiting for Biden to make his own decision on whether to get out of the race or not. Uh, you can't leave that to a person in in this mental condition. And you saw that during the press conference last night. Uh, that didn't help the cause at all. I don't know who thought that angry would be the best approach for this. It wow. just made him look, you know, look like I do when I can't get the scanner to work at the grocery store. <laughs> well, well, yeah, or um, when we're up way past our bedtime. Um, Nolan, I, since when was the standard for prosecution whether or not the defendant is a sympathetic, doddering old man? I mean, and that's the other. That issue was kind here. of a unique thing. Yeah, that's the other issue here, and and one I think that's going to hurt uh, hurt the Democrats because you know Republicans have been convinced right along that this was a persecution of Donald Trump. They they basically the two the two men basically did the same thing. Now you can say, well, okay, Biden was cooperative and he gave gave the the uh, documents back willingly and. Trump had to be grabbed or dragged, kicking and screaming, but that's that doesn't mitigate the crime it, 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 or wipe away the crime. It may mitigate the punishment, but he did the same thing Trump did, and Trump's facing federal charges as Biden's not. Uh, I, you know, I think that's that's very very yeah. damaging. He wasn't guilty of obstruction, but he was guilty of everything else apparent. Right, right. I mean, the the, base, the crime that Trump was being investigated for and charged with was possessing and mishandling these documents. And, you know, at the time he was charged, you say, you know, before we knew that Biden had those documents in his garage as well, the question was, well, why wasn't Hillary Clinton charged? And now you've got two Democratic former or Democratic uh, presidents who officials, if you will, would be presidents who uh, did, did what Trump did. And, Nobody charged him. And if you look, it's not just did what Trump did. 
there are a lot of American civilians and and military personnel who are right. who are given jail sentences for this, and they, you're going to charge them and not uh, these elected officials. Yeah. Wasn't the difference, though, that Trump had 18 months and he wouldn't have been charged, and then he also instructed people to destroy? And move. And move. Wasn't that yeah, the difference? That, go, that goes into the obstruction, but um, you know, he's charged beyond that. And you know there are a lot of folks who have been charged simply for taking them home. Um, that actually wasn't my question. I wanted to know <laughs> yeah. about you guys uh, endorsing not Joe Biden. I mean, we know how you feel, but um, Dean Phillips? Well, I mean, the best choice, uh, best alternate choice available. I, I, we wanted to send the message, anybody but Biden. Uh, Dean Phillips is a, a congressman. He's competent. He's mentally acute. He's uh, versed in policy. Uh, Boy, our standards have slid, haven't they, Nolan? <laughs> well, how could they not? How could they not? How, you know, I, I, how, how could we say, knowing what we know and, and having seen Biden in in action here, we couldn't put our stamp on that any more than we could on Donald Trump. I mean, Biden, Trump, uh, t- Joe Biden has been an awful president. And, you know, you look at foreign policy, you look at domestic policy, every move he's made has been wrong. Uh, and so if Democrats want to ride that in, and that's the nominee they want to give us, fine, but we're not going to salute it. Uh, you know, Dean Phillips, no big prize, obviously. Hmm. I'd never heard of him before he got in the race. But he is a centrist. He is uh, uh, mentally capable, He's and he's he is versed in policy. So, you know, that's what we had to go with. Nolan, the former president's uh, lawyers were in front of uh, the Supreme Court yesterday on that Colorado case. Your thoughts on that? Well, they're either going to win that case. I don't know how you're not. I don't, you know, whether you agree that that uh, or uh, that Trump participated in an insurrection or not is immaterial. I don't think the folks who wrote the insurrection clause of the Fourteenth Amendment meant for it to be a subject a subjective matter that every election official right. in America would be able to interpret whether he deter was a or participated in a insurrection or not. I mean, at some point, a court has to determine that and has to make a finding on whether on whether uh, he he was an insurrectionist. And I don't, you know, I don't know that he's even charged with that, is he? Well, and let the voters decide on that. And to that end, you did not yeah. endorse Donald Trump. You endorsed Nikki Haley. Best candidate out there, I think, uh, and has been for a while. And everybody keeps saying, well, we want somebody other than Trump, uh, other than Biden. Well, here she is. Vote for her. You know, and well, we hope that a lot of people now will look at this ballot and see those three folks on it, uh, Biden, Trump, and Haley, and say, Haley's, whether I'm a Republican, Democrat, or independent, Haley's the best choice available to me. Nolan, I don't know what we're going to talk about on Monday, but I'm sure we'll find something. <laughs> Lord have mercy. There's no <laughs> Take care. Nolan Finley, have a great weekend.
I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it. It sounds awfully national to me. That is Justice Elena Kagan asking a question that seemed to be foremost on the minds of the Supreme Court justices yesterday. No matter what end of the political spectrum they were appointed from, be they conservative or liberal or wear that label, they all seem to share this universal concern that this could corrupt democracy and take it out of the hands of the voters. What about the larger question about whether there was an insurrection, whether the president was responsible for it? Let's get to that with our next guest. He is uh, the uh, Aline and Ellen F. Smith, professor of law and expert on Supreme Court history at the University of Michigan, Richard Friedman, on our live line this morning. Professor Friedman, it's always a pleasure. Uh, Very nice to be with you. Thanks so much. Did you hear the robust debate and questioning about the legal matters here, the definition of insurrection, the definition of officer that is within Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Yeah, I heard most of the uh, uh, most of the argument. They they really did not get into the question of uh, was this an insurrection. I think they're willing to assume that it was an insurrection. They're willing to assume that uh, Trump uh, played a role in it. Um, but they they were saying even if so, uh, could the Colorado decision stand? And it does it does appear that they're prepared to uh, uh, to say no that they're going to reverse the uh, the Colorado decision. Um, my guess is Justice Sotomayor is uh, going to uh, dissent, but uh, but we'll see. It could be, it could be a nine nothing uh, decision, but they they're, they're not going to get into the question of uh, what was an, whether this was an insurrection or whether Trump played a role in it. I think the moment that you played with Justice Kagan asking you know was it a national uh, was this one state controlling. The nation was uh, um, was one pivotal moment. What do you think I, I, is the most compelling argument? Is it that he, quote, is not an officer? Is it that um, one state should not make this decision? Which is your, in your opinion, the most uh, compelling argument that they will actually, use? I mean, yeah, in my opinion, there's no compelling argument. I mean, I think, they, I think what they should say is that the Colorado decision can stand and uh, each state will uh, decide on its own. And if they have decisions that will uh, uh, withstand scrutiny, okay, some states might declare them eligible, some not. But they don't seem to be prepared to uh, to do that. Uh, it, it, to some people, it seems chaotic. I don't think it really would be. It's something that we're used to, some candidates being in, on the ballot in some states, some not. But that, that I think, is uh, the... Uh, principal concern for for many of them, including Justice Kagan, uh, right there, that this is a national decision. It should be made nationally, pursuant to national rules. Uh, some some of the justices uh, were at least intrigued by the idea that the president isn't a um, isn't an officer under the uh, under the constitutional language. I would be surprised if that drew a majority of the uh, of the of the court. Uh, some were uh, concerned about, gee, if, if Colorado is right, what does this mean about uh, it was was Trump then ineligible as of January 6th? And uh, and what did that uh, what did that mean? Uh, I think that will be a concern for uh, 
for for some of them. Um, uh, and and then there's also the question of, well, maybe the the 14th Amendment just bars candidates from holding office. It doesn't bar them from running for office because there's always the chance that Congress would remove the, uh, the ineligibility. That got a lot of airtime as well. So, Professor, do you think that the Supreme Court is, you know, looking for a, a narrow um, decision and having uh, wanting all nine to vote to keep him on the ballot just so that there won't be any type of uh, political look of, uh, you know, one side against the other Democrat, a Democratic lean and the Republican lean. Do you think that they're looking for that narrow piece as opposed to broadening that out? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I, I think the chief justice would love to have a nine, nothing decision. Uh, I think he'll get most of the way there at least, uh, possibly all, all the way. Um, as I say, justice, Sotomayor, it seemed to me to be prepared to uh, affirm the uh, Colorado decision. She's not uh, afraid to be uh, a lone dissenter, but it might be in this case that uh, uh, that that she'd be pushed to to go along, um, you know, particularly if she is uh, on her own. But yeah, they're they're not they're not going to get into the question of whether uh, this was an insurrection. But if they Trump played a role in it. If they don't address the central issue about whether it was an insurrection or not, whether he's an officer or not, if they tailor a very narrow decision here, doesn't that leave the door open for Maine, Nebraska, any state coming up with maybe a subtly different interpretation? And then we got to go through this whole process again. I don't think so. I think if they say uh, this is a a national decision that a state cannot make uh, and they might say it requires prior congressional authorization, uh, which, I mean, t- to my mind is wrong. But if they say that, then then no, no state is going to be able to do anything. Uh, this idea- I, think, I think they're going to uh, uh, put a firm lid on this thing. This idea of one state deciding, I mean, isn't this the way cases get to the Supreme Court? It comes from one state? Cases come from one state, but this is an unusual decision. It if if the Supreme Court upheld the Colorado decision and said he's ineligible because we adopt the findings of the Colorado uh, court or because the Colorado court findings look okay, that would be unusual because then, then you might say, well, gee, what would have happened if the first case that got there had, had come out the other way? So Sure. Uh, a decision by one state always tees up an issue. Mm-hmm. But in, in this case, what they're afraid of is that um, uh, if if they affirmed it would be setting a national rule because of what the Colorado Supreme Court did. As I say, I don't think they have to do that. I think they could say each state decides on its own who's eligible to uh, to be on its ballot. Yeah. But they don't seem to be prepared to do that. I'm I'm curious about your interpretation of this. The headlines have been big day, big win for Trump and his attorneys. You know, they they seem to be interpreting it within a political context. But I look at it a little differently, which is as a voter, it seems like a win for me that I'm not going to have one secretary of state or one judge in a in in a state determining what my choices are. Do you agree? Well, or I'm, no, I, I don't. I don't agree. I mean, as I say, uh, they could uphold it. Just say that uh, this is a decision for Colorado. Now, sure, there is the question of 
is an anti-democratic, but I think what I would say is it's constitutional. We have a constitutional democracy, and the uh, the Constitution says that some candidates are ineligible. And as I say, there was there's very little discussion of whether Trump was actually uh, eligible. I mean, there's the question of maybe this doesn't apply to the president. But, you know, if you say, well, look, the Constitution says that anybody who takes an oath to support the, uh, the Constitution uh, and violates that oath by supporting an insurrection can't hold office again, um, well, then that person shouldn't be able to hold office, mm-hmm. you know, even if the people want it. So, I mean, that's what the Constitution yeah. means is, is that choices are limited. I, I do agree that it would be a bad thing for one state to decide for everybody. Okay. But I don't think that I don't think that needs to be the uh, the result if they affirm. But they're not going to go that way. All right. Uh, yeah, there's so much in the eye of the beholder on all of these things, and then there's no question that, that there is a partisan influence here as well. We'll see what they do. They don't have much time. Uh, March fifth is Super Tuesday when Colorado and other states go to vote. We will await their decision. You think they'll deliver it quickly? Very very quickly. They'll probably deliver it quickly, but you know. Uh, the, the decisions of Maine and Colorado are on hold, and until they, unless they affirmed it, uh, nothing's going to happen. Trump remains on the ballot. So, right. they, they, given where they're going, they could take their time. Richard, I don't think they will. Richard Freeman, professor of law at the University of Michigan. We appreciate your time, sir. My pleasure. All right. When we come back, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like the appetizer to the Super Bowl. The the ads. Are there any out there that are going to be really compelling? funny maybe tug at our heartstrings we'll talk about that and get prepped for the super bowl next on jr morning at 7:49. we know change means more reliable energy for homes and businesses across michigan at least that is the focus of consumers energy where they know keeping the lights on is job number one from tree trimming and burying lines to new technology they've got a clear plan for fewer and shorter outages and last year they cleared branches from more than 7,000 miles of power lines. They replaced poles with sturdier materials that can withstand some of the extreme weather and winds that we're anticipating. They also added smart technology. So if there is an outage, they can reroute the power very quickly. Their reliability roadmap is working toward a day when even the worst storm does not affect more than 100,000 customers, and they are all back on within 24 hours. A good goal. Consumers Energy, a force of change, a force for you. Well, we know the Super Bowl is really kind of like Ringling Brothers. I mean, it's it's many circuses at once. You've got the food that we'll all be indulging in. We mm-hmm. have a football game. We've got this subtext with Travis and Taylor. Uh, we've got the betting going on. A lot of people oh, are engaged in, in, in that, and there have been, never been more prop bets than there are right now. That's right. But it's also just this incredible... Uh, economic event. Renee Vitale, you've been kind of looking at kind of the, the numbers behind the Super Bowl. I like all the random stats that you can learn this time of the year. So talking about the betting, $1.3 billion. That's the amount that will be legally wagered on the game this year. And, and we've got, what, 89 prop bets now. And this is only online because we states can't do uh, prop yeah. bets. 
But I mean, some crazy stuff. What shade of lipstick will Taylor yeah, wear? I, you know, I was up all night last night trying to figure that out. Trying to figure that out. What's the over under on that? I'm going to go with red. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, whether or not she'll cry if the Chiefs lose. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the other bets, or excuse me, some of the other numbers on there 50 million cases of beer sold across the country, and 90%, that's how much more beer is consumed on Super Bowl Sunday than the average day. And we are watching Bud Light heavily investing in yes. kind of rehabilitating its image as the everyman beer after yep. the the LGBTQ thing. They're really trying hard. Uh, the average number of people who will attend the average Super Bowl party, 14. Wow, okay. that's, a that's, pretty, that's a nice crowd. Man, yeah. I'm... I guess we've been lowballing our parties <laughs> in the Gordon household. You have a measly six. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and there's a lot of money to be spent. I mean, a lot of a lot of chickens are going to lose their wings this weekend. Oh, yeah. boy. Let's talk about if you're going to the game. The average price of a ticket on the resale market, $10,752. Uh, $299 is the lowest daily hotel rate in the area. That's the lowest. Two ninety nine. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. Well, I don't know what you're getting for two ninety nine. Yeah, you're probably off the strip. <laughs> right. Yeah. A bed weird. in a sink. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Thirty five percent increase in pizza orders. I actually thought that number was kind of low. Uh, One hundred and twelve point two million people who will either throw or attend a Super Bowl party this year. And here's a number for you. How many do you think are going to call in sick to work on Monday? What will this do to our GDP on Monday? The greatest thing about the Super Bowl is it starts early. It's not like the national championship and things that are late. I actually have that number, too. Have you got 16 million? 18.8 million. Oh, worse than I thought. That's going to result in $9.2 billion in lost productivity. Well, I well, think that's mostly Chiefs and 49ers fans. Yeah. I mean, everyone else can watch the game, go to their party, and, and, and go oh, to what sleep. What about yeah. us that don't need much of an excuse to overindulge, Jamie? You're not giving us enough credit. My bad. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> party. We'll, I don't care. We'll, we'll, be here. Yeah. we'll be here on Monday. I don't guarantee there will be 100%. Uh, but now, if the Lions were there, there would be different deal around here, especially around here. Especially around here. So I did check out some of the previews of the ads, and um, I I think it's not going to be a great year. But one did stick out to me, and and as a pickleball player, I can take the ribbing. It's the E-Trade Babies playing pickleball. So this is pickleball? It's basically tennis for babies, but for adults. (laughs) It should be called wiffle tennis. Pickle! Yeah. Oh. These guys are intense. We got nothing to worry about. With E-Trade from Morgan Stanley, we're ready for whatever gets served up. Dude, you got to work on your trash talk. I'd rather work on saving for retirement. Or college, since you like to get schooled. That's a pretty good burn, right? Got him. Game. Thanks for coming to our clinic. First one's free. First of all, you got to picture these little guys with the paddles bigger than they are. Okay? <laughs> but it's it's really cute. There's some also some, there was one in particular that left a lump in my throat from yeah. Dove. So we watched that. We watched that, we watched that this morning. Yes. And it's about how a high percentage of girls stop playing sports after the age of 14. And it's not because the sport's hard or they fall down too much. It's because of their body image. And that hits me. That really it, hits me. Yeah. I'm raising a daughter who I want to be confident, and I like that message by Dove. Like, let's switch this up. And let me tell you, it starts off as this light little, you know, the song from Annie. It's a hard knock life, and yes. it's kind of cute. And then they deliver just a knockout blow about what we're 
doing to our daughters mm-hmm. and and what the bullying of social media is yeah the social media and that you can't even you can't even get to the image that you see every day on your phone so yeah. uber yeah. eats has a reunion of the of the of two of the friends uh david schwimmer and jennifer aniston you're going to see them i, I honestly don't know what the point of the ad is it's cute but it's, it's about it's it's about <laughs> the, I, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it's yeah. about remembering that Uber Eats is about more than just food. That you can order a ton of different stuff. Okay, but it's a real stretch with the. the I'm message. usually in when friends people are involved. Yeah. Renee, I uh, you know I think they're playing on our nostalgia mm-hmm. with it, the loss of Matthew Perry this year. Yeah, that too. But whether it's that or the Clydesdales returning. Or the E-Trade babies coming back. It's all about nostalgia. And you're right. And, and does that say that maybe Madison Avenue senses America needs a little comfort food? And I think that it's brilliant because I think Jamie and I are in the same age group, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and we're the consumers, right? We're, we're the big money spenders. And they know that Friends hits our nostalgia. You know what else? Guy pointed this out. There's going to be more female viewers because Swifties are going to be watching. Oh, yeah. So that change, you know, there's going to be more female-centric ads. And a yeah. cosmetics company that I've never heard of called ELF. Yes. ELF, Eyes, yeah. Lips, Face. They're going to be doing a nostalgia thing mm-hmm. with members of the Suits cast coming back before Judge Judy. And they're going to be <laughs> complaining about the high cost of cosmetics. Is Meghan Markle going to be involved? <laughs> That's she, a great question. She isn't even alluded to. Okay. Uh, uh. But it... You know, again, kind of rebooting things that we're familiar with because we kind of need those touchstones right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, we do. Definitely. You know, and Usher, a lot of war and discord. That's a and bit familiar right. to Renee oh, yeah. and I, yeah. too. Yeah. Maybe everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we will see. Uh, meantime, you might want to check out the, the prop bets that are out there and have a little fun with the guests at your party. We'll be back. Looking at the markets, it looks like not only are we headed towards record temperatures with our weather here, but things are really heating up on Wall Street. The DJ futures are looking like they could knock on the door to 39,000 today. The S&P futures in record territory as we are less than 90 minutes off the open. Um, Wall Street's loving what's happening right now. And while we know consumers are frustrated with the price of a lot of things and the fact that prices are still escalating, there are other things happening in the economy uh, that are looking pretty good. Got to say, though, when, you know, when the feds see that, uh, it certainly looks like we're going to be postponing any interest rate cuts mm-hmm. uh, when they see how heated the market is. And again, yesterday, our unemployment claims hitting new lows. So uh, a, lo- a lot of good news, which is the bad news is we, may- we if you're looking for a little bit of break on the interest rates and borrowing, that may be a little bit further down the road. Uh, meantime, um, the Supreme Court stuff could not have been more fascinating. Yesterday, Jamie, they are looking for an an exit ramp to send to put Trump back on the ballot, and it doesn't matter whether they're liberal or conservative. That's right. It, it didn't seem that way that they were focusing on everything but Trump's role in the supposed insurrection. They were looking at should one state have this authority to knock someone off. They looked at, is he an officer or not? Things like that, not the insurrection question. And it didn't seem to matter whether they came from the liberal end of the spectrum or the conservative end. They, they seem to be singing out of the same hymnal. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it. It sounds awfully national to me. 
there was, and we'll, we'll see where this happens. Uh, we talked to uh, Professor Friedman from U of M a little bit earlier. I heard Barbara McQuaid earlier. Uh, they both think that there's going to be a big push to get this done by at March 5th at the latest, the Super Tuesday Less primaries. It will clear away these clouds over who should and should not be on the ballot. But they all seem to say, hey, voters should be making that choice who's disqualified based on their own subjective reasons, not one or two select people in specific states. And uh, and Alito saying something, which is true, because, you know, are, we're going to get into this terrible tit-for-tat partisan uh, posturing of, well, you kicked my guy off the ballot in Nebraska, so I'm going to kick your guy off the ballot in California. Mm-hmm. There is definitely a fear of that happening, because that's what's happening in Congress right now. <clears throat> so... Sure. Where we had a vote on Israeli and Ukraine funding and 17 Republicans backed it. So at least the first procedural vote was passed. We'll see what happens. And the larger question is what's going to happen over in the House where there is doesn't seem to be a big lust for helping Ukraine much further. Uh, And they want to tie it back to the border of this country, which we already well, did, and we tied something. Dismissed it, <laughs> right? So we'll we'll see where that goes. Meantime, um, we've got people in this community calling. They want nothing less than a ceasefire and an end to Israeli aid altogether. Lloyd. Yeah, community leaders and Palestinian Americans recently met up with White House said, uh, advisors in Dearborn to discuss the administration's handling of the Hamas-Israel conflict. While some attendees pleaded for action to evacuate family members from Gaza, others uh, said they want those hostilities to end and all the financial support for what they deem genocide to end. Uh, The Arab American and Muslim communities have stated they will not support President Biden in future elections if a ceasefire is not swiftly called. And I know Marie Osborne will be joining us at 819 to give us more details on what happened in that meeting. Meantime, uh, a lot of fallout coming out of the special counsel's report regarding the classified documents found not in Mar-a-Lago, but in Joe Biden's garage in Delaware. This headline from NBC News, a nightmare. Special counsel's assessment of Biden's mental fitness triggers Democratic panic. In the Wall Street Journal, Biden's doddering document defense, where the special counsel says, quote, in his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president. Forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, quote, if it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president, quote, and forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began in 2009, am I still vice president? It was embarrassing, certainly concerning as we look at his cognitive decline and wondering where it will be at the end of his second term if he gets one. Uh, And the president trying to wipe all this away. By saying, well, very, being very indignant that they raised the issue that he seemed to forget by several years when his son died. None of their damn business. Let me tell you something. Some of you have commented, I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from Our Lady of... Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him, attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away. So maybe he didn't answer the question because he thought it was inappropriate. But the bottom line is he has misrepresented and mischaracterized how his son died again and again and again when talking to Gold Star families to say, oh, 
I feel your pain. You know, I, I lost Bo in Afghanistan. He died of cancer in the United States, but he keeps resurrecting this myth of his son's service. So spare me your indignation, Mr. Biden, because no, your memory is either faulty or deliberately so. And um, it, it, it has caused deep concern in the Democratic Party about his both his willful retention of documents, which would be chargeable were he not president, and uh, and the the terrible things the special counsel raised about his lack of memory. It's, it's an interesting report from the special counsel, though. I mean, to, to go, go into there. calling him an elderly man and things like that, it's, it seems like usually special counselors, letter of the law, we're not charging him. We don't think it'd be a sympathetic, you know, defendant, period. But I guess since he's the president and he had these memory lapses, it's like, okay, I got to let you know that this is going on because if I don't and it gets worse and I know and I knew about it, didn't say anything. Yeah, I, I think Barb McQuaid had, was on MS and I heard her this morning. It was interesting because there's a lot of people saying that are upset about this, saying, well, this is a political document. He's attacking the, you know, the president's memory. She said, no. From a legal standpoint, this is relevant because it explains why he won't be charged upon leaving office. It also goes to his level of cooperation um, or lack thereof. And and she was, I thought, she said no. And, and she said he's not being hostile throughout this entire, I think it's a 215-page report. She goes, he's not being hostile throughout it. It's it's only these elements with the which the media has seized upon, but still relevant in, in her mind, which I thought was an, an interesting he had no shortage of excuses. Simple truth is I sat for a five-hour interview over two days of events going back 40 years. At the same time I was managing an international crisis, their task was to make a decision about whether to move forward with charges in this case. That's their decision to make. That's the council's decision to make. That's his job. And they decided not to move forward. Well, not because you weren't necessarily culpable and there wasn't probable cause, but because they thought you were an, an overly sympathetic defendant to a jury. And so he's really spinning this thing uh, heavily. He said he was cooperative. Nobody seems to remember that he put off the interview with the special counsel for months and months uh, before finally sitting. Um, we'll see what happens. Quick thing, kind of fun. Um, a survey done, deep dive. This is deep, deep research. Mm. What foreign accent or accent in general do you think the vast majority of people find the sexiest? Colombian or Puerto Rican? You, you go through a, for a Latin. Latin type of. Yeah. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I was going to say New Zealand, Australia, because I was down there and I enjoyed that. Uh, but now I'm going to go with Italian. I was also there and, you know. Interesting. I enjoyed that. Interesting. Because the the French you were the title see her holders. Face, guys. The French were the title holders originally and I'm sure they're saying <clears throat> Merd. Um th- this it is the Italians. You are oh, right. right. The Italians according Italian, to this this research that is the that is the <laughs> sexiest and most attractive thing. I will tell you something that I did years ago which I still found really weird but it was fun. Do you know how on DVDs you can change the language, the yes, spoken language? That's right. Watch The Wizard of Oz and use the French. I swear to you, the Wicked Witch of the Vest sounds, she sounds hot. Uh. Um, <laughs> it is, it is kind of, you know. Okay. okay. But on the other side, you give her a German accent, scariest oh, thing. Yeah. 
ever. No offense to Germans listening. No, no, no but it was that <laughs> only, uh, and your little dog, too, comes out very harsh. Um, Toto. Back with more uh, on, on this, this deep divide between the Arab American community and the Biden administration and what they want from the Biden administration to heal that rift. That's next at uh, 819 here on News Talk 760. Meantime, I am so excited for this trip that's planned with our friends at Cruise and Tour. Late September, Gail and I want to invite all of you to come with us on a WJR Travel Club Tour to Southeast Asia. We're going to be going to Vietnam, Cambodia. This is, a, for us, is really a land of mystery. It's a, it's a land of ancient cultures that we're really interested in exploring. And we're going to be doing a deep dive, certainly, into the culinary uh, qualities that are there. I just think it's going to be an amazing trip. And the best part is, is that we're going to be on our own boat with you. We don't have to share it with anybody else. This is going to be a uh, luxury river boat steaming up the uh, Mekong River. And uh, it's all ours. So it's going to be an all Detroit crew, all Michigan crew. And we hope you'll come with us. You can find the full itinerary at WJR Travel Club dot com or by calling our friends at cruise and tour they're there to answer any of your questions 800-383-3131 we're excited we hope you're excited enough to check it out and then join us in september for an epic journey there are some healthy debates out there about the supreme court's uh, handling of the 14th amendment question yesterday we played a few cuts from you that the Justices appear to be looking for a way to put Mr. Trump back on the ballot, saying that the threat to democracy is that you've got uh, just the authority in very few hands. Uh, Bob, uh, Rob, rather, is calling in from Roseville with a, another uh, legal question about this. Hi, Rob. Hey, how you doing? Um, I know everybody wants to focus in like a laser beam on Section 3, which kind of describes it. The problem they're not looking at is at, in Section 5, the last section of the 14th Amendment, it says these things are, can only be enforced by the Congress of the United States and laws that they passed, and they have never passed any laws regarding Section 3. Actually, so, there, until, was, there was something that was passed in the 40s um, re- regarding insurrection, and I, I forgive me for not being able to quote it. But the other part is, Rob, what about those that say that most of the 14th Amendment is self-executing and that therefore Section 3 is too, that you don't need a, a separate action? Except that they wrote Section 5. And the other problem you have is it would require somebody to be convicted of, because you have to have a clear say that this person actually committed insurrection. And anybody who would argue that there was any insurrection that occurred on January 6th has never been in a riot. (laughs) Didn't they disqualify Jefferson Davis, though, and he wasn't convicted? No, I don't think they ever disqualified him. I don't think he ever tried to run for president. Rob, they've disqualified people for writing letters to the editor that were in support of the Confederacy. Well, Where there they, were no what they did was they, they refused to support them, but that I don't think they ever legally disqualified them. They made a, they might have put out and said, we don't want him because he's he's too close to an insurrectionist. Yeah, but yeah I, I would I would check the original know. Colorado case because there was a historian that was part of that that brought that case in that it doesn't have to be actual um, 
active involvement in the so-called insurrection. You know, it is a compelling legal argument whether Section 5 is an overarching uh, mm-hmm. influencer yeah. here. And we appreciate we'll wait your and call. and see what the Supremes come up with. Yeah, in, indeed. And they're on a quick timeline. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is facing increasing backlash from Arab Americans who say he's turned his back on them due to the administration's support of Israel and its war on Hamas, in which thousands of civilians have died in Gaza. WJR senior news analyst Marie Osborne is here. She has more on that meeting that took place yesterday between Biden administration officials and Arab American leaders in Dearborn. Good morning, Marie. And good morning, everybody. First, let's tell you who was at this meeting at the Henry. Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, State Representative Abraham Aish, also Dearborn Mayor Abdul Hamoud, Deputy Wayne County Executive Assad Turf, and American Arab news publisher Osama Simblani. Also from the Biden administration, there was Samantha Power, John Finer, and Stephen Benjamin. They are in, deeply involved in this issue. The meeting started Thursday morning, lasted several hours. The White House has not commented on what was said during the meeting other than to say it was private. Osama Sibilani told WDIV that he presented a letter to the group demanding an immediate ceasefire and a release of hostages, he says, on both sides. Representative Aish says, uh, described the conversations as intense but direct. No one gave any sp- specific details on what was discussed, but it is landmark that this meeting even took place. And all of you guys know that Michigan holds the largest concentration of Arab Americans in the country, more than 310,000 residents from the Middle East or North Africa are in this area. Nearly half of Dearborn's uh, 110 residents claim Arab ancestry. So this was an important meeting uh, to smooth over some very uh, sore feelings on this topic. But they have the Biden administration, Marie, between a rock and a hard place because they're demanding nothing less than cutting Israel loose financially. Absolutely. That is um, uh, that is certainly what Osama Sablani said. They have spoken about this before. Other Arab leaders have spoken on this. And I think that's one of the reasons why they were very tight-lipped about what happened in this meeting, because we know that if some sort of agreement had been reached or some sort of uh, amicable uh, thing had been reached, we would have heard about it. They kept everything to themselves here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they didn't get any commitments. They were able to voice their opinions, but really no commitments from the administration. Nope. You are absolutely right. They are. There's no commitment here. And like I said, I think we would have heard if they had reached any mutual ground. And that is not the case about what happened here. Uh, also, this is the second time that um, the representatives of the White House have been to the area to talk to Arab leaders. This one was made very public in terms of the meeting actually taking place. But I, I have a feeling that this may happen again in, in the coming months. I wonder... The American president can't just call for a ceasefire and then there be a ceasefire. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu is the decider here. So sometimes I think maybe there's too much uh, on just Biden could decide this all, right? That is absolutely right. Um, But I think that the feeling among uh, the Arab American community here is that the funding that is going to Israel, now the president does have some control over that and so they're they're just saying they need to be cut off they're they're literally attacking according to you know them they're attacking their uh their country and they they just want it to stop 
And it's interesting. You, you kind of ask him, you know, well, do, you, do you think that, that, that Donald Trump would offer you a better alternative? He, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. he moved our embassy to Jerusalem. He has been very supportive of Israel. And the other thing here, too, is do they give the Biden administration no credit for Secretary Blinken's uh, shuttle diplomacy here to try to bring about a ceasefire, more aid to Gaza, greater relief for for the, uh, the, the those trapped in mm-hmm. Gaza? I mean, it's not like the, the Biden administration has been sitting on its hands. Mm-hmm. You, it's so true, Guy, because um, Antony Blinken has been back and forth several times, and he has been very clear that they want to reach some kind of mutual agreement here, working very hard on, on this point. And uh, what it, it's almost like, what more? What more can we do if the parties who are involved are not cooperating? Yeah. There's so, a lot of right, back channel talks going yeah. on. Yes, yeah. But I really do think it goes back to this funding of uh, Israel. I think that this is the sorest spot for for these Arab American leaders here. Mm, got yeah. it. And more relief for Gaza and the United yeah. Nations relief group there that's been uh, so controversial. Marie, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Tom Izzo, next on JR Morning. It's hard to win in the Big Ten on the road, and the Michigan State men's basketball team found that out Tuesday when they lost to Minnesota 59-56. We're awaiting coach, but right now we do have WJR senior sports analyst Steve Courtney. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Jamie. Hello again, everyone. Happy Friday. Uh, yeah, Jamie, going into that tilt uh, with the Gophers at the barn, Williams Arena, land of 10,000 lakes, uh, Tom Mizzo made it clear that winning on the road uh, in the Big Ten uh, requires physical and mental toughness. Look, there was opportunity uh, for the Spartans to make a statement. They had a nine-point lead with about 13 minutes left in the tilt, and their star, Tyson Walker, uh, re-aggravates an existing groin injury, so he departs. Well, as it turns out, uh, the Gophers took full advantage over the next three minutes, 42 seconds or so, uh, scoring 10 straight points. Um, so here's the thing. Um, there were some folks that needed to step up, some veteran players, um, and they didn't do a very good job. And as far as losses go, for the Spartans historically. Tom Mizzo was about as vocal about this one uh, as he really ever has been uh, in Big Ten play. Uh, He, after the game, said that uh, he didn't want to say anything rash until he looked at the film. Then he looked at the film, and uh, his original diagnosis remained. Well, he said he's more (laughs) mad after watching film. Yeah, Yeah, he is uh, quite displeased. Uh, Look, uh, this Spartans team, uh, they had the opportunity, and let's start here. Seven for 17 from the charity strike. Uh, that is not going to get her done. Uh, and I understand that uh, the man of the hour is here. Uh, a lot to unpack. Uh, Coach, good morning. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Everything is well. I was just discussing the fact that uh, historically, after a loss, um, you kind of take the high road with your team your players, uh, you were very upset with the way this thing unfolded. You expected veteran players to make plays after Tyson Walker left. Uh, and I had mentioned that uh, 
the uh, Gophers coach went on a 10-0 run after that. We talked about the free throw situation. Uh, there were some things that could have gotten done that didn't. Does it all come down to mental toughness? Well, you know, veteran players, and I also said that that's the media probably didn't write it that way, but I don't read it, so I don't know. But um, I, I said uh, veteran players, veteran coach. You know, uh, there's nobody that does anything by themselves. I mean, I heard the end of or the beginning. I don't know where it was, but I just heard you before I popped on. You know, you go seven for 17 from the line. You're not winning on the road. I don't, I don't You'd have to be perfect in other things. Uh, but we, uh, that was too bad because some of the guys that missed free throws were shooting good. Some of the guys weren't shooting as good. But a lot of things happened in that stretch when Tyson went out including, uh, you know, in, in, in all fairness and honesty, um, there's some things i got to do a better job of. I mean, i just got to realize what our strengths, what our deficiencies are, and act accordingly. So, um, yeah, I was disappointed. I mean, uh, there's not been many games where I've been disappointed and ticked off and all the above, and that was a game against a pretty good team on the road that I thought we played well enough to win, and then, just made some mistakes. I mean, even the first half, we were up five, six. We missed a bunch of free throws there. That would extend runs, you know. And uh, sure, and that's the key, you know. It is, people say, well, it's only ten missed free throws, but they extend runs, and they instead of being up five at halftime, we're up ten or eleven, you know. And and instead of being up nine or ten in the second half, you're up thirteen or fourteen if you make some free throws in the second half. And then, uh, then you can weather a, a 10-0 run maybe or a 9-0 run or something. So, um, yeah, I, I was uh, very disappointed, and uh, it lasted a whole day. It wasn't the 24-hour rule. It lasted till the next day. And uh, sometimes that has to happen. And, you know, I think uh, yesterday we had a good practice, and today, you know, you go the other way now. You ramp it up because you got another game. That's the beauty and the curse of basketball. You know, you sometimes have two and three games a week, and that's uh, you can't dwell on much, but you can't just forget either. Um, now, the free throw shooting, um, I take no blame in that. I give no blame in that. We we spend an enormous amount of time shooting free throws and have been shooting really good. Um, and, you know, we got one or two guys that aren't, but they've been working on it. So I don't blame staff. I don't blame players on that. The execution of the offense, the bad shots, um, which we normally don't have a problem with, but the shot clock ran down and we just, you know, weren't used to not having uh, Tyson in there. And, um, you know, we didn't handle it very well as a staff and as a, as, a, as players. So, um, you know, this thing where the coach just takes all the blame is crazy because I don't play the game. And the thing where the players just take all the blame is crazy because the coach has to find a way to put players in a position to be successful. So both parties failed, and uh, we lost the game that I think we could have won, and now we got to move forward. Coach, uh, what's Tyson's uh, prognosis? When do you expect him back? Yeah, I expect him back. I mean, he did play, you know, somewhat the last, uh, you know, six minutes or seven minutes of that game, whatever it was. But um, we gave him yesterday some time. He practiced a little bit, but uh, – I'm hoping he'll be 80, 90 percent. It's probably not going to go away, but um, he's been playing with it for a while now. So he'll uh, 
I, I think he'll be at a pretty high percentage. It won't be perfect, but it's, uh, as Magic Johnson used to tell me, you know, once the first five games of the NBC or the NBA season was over, um, everybody plays hurt. You just can't play injured. And so he's been playing hurt and hurting a little bit, but he fights through it like a lot of players have to. That's kind of what the Lions did as the season ended there, too. Yeah. Um, my question yeah. is, who can be your source of scoring or should be your source of scoring? It seems, and I'm not a veteran coach, that it's only Tyson Walker down the stretch. Well, it, it, it's not. I mean, uh, A.J. has had some moments when he has. Jay Nakins has had some big games. And, you know, at times we can go to Malik Hall. But, uh, you know, we were caught in a situation that uh, we just didn't handle very well. So it looked even worse than what it was, and uh, rightfully so. So the criticism is warranted, and nobody criticized it more than I did, and nobody looked in the mirror more than I did. So we've got other players that can make plays, and, uh, you know, we had the luxury of being used to him. And uh, he didn't always make shots. In fact, if there's one area of his game that has improved, his assist-to-turnover ratio is much greater than it used to be. So um, we'll see. You know, tomorrow I think we play the most talented team in the league. I'm not sure they're the best team. I still think Purdue might be. But I think talent, uh, I think it's the most talented team in the league. All right, so Malik Hall, six points uh, in the loss to Minnesota. Um, Double-teamed almost immediately. Uh, usually that means somebody's got to be open. Uh, I was kind of disappointed. Uh, six points total from the bigs. Uh, that was maybe a missed opportunity. That being said, yeah. no matter what the sport, there's going to be adversity. Could this be a defining moment as you get ready to host number 12 Illinois tomorrow? God, I don't know what's a defining moment in college sports right now because um, the, the consistency is, has been inconsistent for a lot of people right now. And, so, you know, I, I think we have a golden opportunity. Uh, as far as going back to that, remember in that game, I think, I think, I'm not positive, but I think Malik missed five or six. I think he was three for eight or nine. So, you know, if you if you make uh, four of those, um, you know, so you're at 10, 11 points, and it's you win the game. I mean, there's just no question about it. So, um, some of it went to that, and uh, some of it was the job they did. And take nothing away from Minnesota because it makes me feel like I'm putting them down there. You know, they had just beaten was it Northwestern and almost beat Wisconsin, and um, were playing some of their best basketball, and that was the beauty of it. I thought against a good team on the road, we played good enough to win, other than on a six, seven minute stretch, five minute stretch, and and, right. and some just unbelievable free throw misses well coach we hope your team bounces back you host illinois saturday number 10 illinois at two o'clock we'll be watching thanks guys have a great weekend thank you coach Coach. and thank Thank you you, steve thank you have a wonderful (laughs) friday uh the next big thing after the super bowl is the draft and we've got it coming up here in our town and detroit is at the super bowl that's next so in, in the final second ticks off the clock at the Super Bowl, a whole different kind of super event begins. The spotlight shifts from Las Vegas to the city of Detroit. And right now, our Detroit Sports Commission officials are out in Las Vegas 
um, preparing for the NFL draft, which will be next in line. Among them, Terry Radigan, chair of the Detroit Sports Organizing Corporation. Terry, good morning. Good morning, Guy. You're Thanks up early me. out there, and we appreciate yeah, that. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to be on. Or did you go to bed? <laughs> oh, it is Vegas. Did you have it the hangover Vegas. movie situation going on? No, no, uh, no Mike Tyson, no Tigers. Okay. And you have all your teeth. Yeah. We're, we're, we're happy, happy, to, <laughs> happy to hear that. Just tell me about the, kind of the anticipation from, from your end. Is this kind of like getting a, a dose of adrenaline before the big event? 100%. And it's so heartening. To, we've got a booth at Radio Row. And so the Detroit Sports Commission is actually right next to the booth for New Orleans, who's hosting the next Super Bowl. So we're trying to tie that in that Detroit Lions will be in the next Super Bowl in New Orleans. But we've got a ton of media and they're stopping by the booth and they uh, were doing a lot of interviews and talking about the fact that we're 76 days away from the from the draft in Detroit. And uh, I tell you, the, the level of support, I really do believe now that we are America's team because the level of support people have come up and just been so genuine in their comments about how Everyone was pulling for the line in the in happen this year. I'm confident it will happen next year. But uh, yeah, the buzz out here is uh, palpable, and people are excited to come to our great city. The uh, the the draft though, and what's going to happen here is going to be huge as well, Terry. I mean, um, the fact that ours will be a little different from from the others that it will be in campus marshes, but it will be in all the neighborhoods as well. Exactly, Lloyd, and and that's what makes our draft. It's going to be the grit part of our Detroit Lions that's going to come through too, because it's going to be, as you said, right downtown, Campus Martius, all the way uh, to Hart Plaza, where the NFL fan experience will take place. But then it's very, very inclusive with the neighborhoods, with the suburbs. We really want to make this uh, a draft for everyone. It's completely free, as you know, and. Uh, Everyone should be getting the uh, the downloading the NFL One Pass because that's going to be your access point, your ticket, and all the information you want about the draft will be on the on the free app, the NFL uh, One Pass. So we're we're super excited, and it's not just two teams like in the Super Bowl or four teams when you have a Final Four. We're going to have 32 teams represented, and fans from all those markets will be converging on Detroit. So we cannot possibly wait it's gonna be great uh terry i remember when my wedding was coming up i had this countdown and all the things i had to do what's left to do in 76 days jamie there's quite a bit as you can imagine today actually the nfl is going to um, jointly with us um we're going to show a rendering a couple of renderings of what the draft stage will look like mm. and a little bit about how it will impact downtown or how it will it's a it's a, more of a um uh, the city view that I think is pretty compelling. So we're starting to, as as Guy said, the Super Bowl clock ends, and we get the full attention of the end of the NFL at that point. And they're going to have a ton of people in town planning for it. And then it's just about the two years of of uh, meetings and planning and strategizing. Then it's execution mode, and it's everything from, like I said, making it the most inclusive. Uh, event it can possibly be the safest event it can possibly be and then obviously there's some things that are out of our control like the weather but hey we're going to have a great great three days in detroit we, we should have it this weekend hey, i'm telling I know. you <laughs> <laughs>
You know, uh, Terry, from a tourism perspective, I mean, this is really a, a huge opportunity, not only for the the people who come to Detroit for the first time, but you got about 60 million people are going to be watching. And the views that they will see of our great city are going to be, you know, just you can't put a price tag on it. Lord. Right. And, and so that's the the best part. And I, I I think we got a lot of that with the Lions, with our two home playoff games. Every time NBC left or came back from the game, they were showing these amazing drone footage and the riverfront, Belle Isle, all the great murals in, in our town. So it, it really, you can't put a price tag on it, but I know it's valuable. So how are we going to show folks a good time? Because, I mean, I've heard folks say, well, I mean, we wait for one team to come up and the next team to come up. They don't seem to understand that the fun's going to be around the draft. So tell me what what should be on our uh, on our checklist of, of fun things to do and see. Well, if you want to get right in the action, then, of course, you've got to be in the footprint there by Campus Martius. But you don't really need to be in the footprint to have an amazing time. There'll be things going on up by Comerica Park and the Fox Theater and Little Caesars. You can bet Corktown and Eastern Market and, and down by the River Greektown. No matter what, even if you can't see the stage, you're going to feel a part of it because we've got all these wonderful uh, attractions in our downtown area. And uh, so it's, it's just really going to be special. And I'll tell you, I was in Kansas City, and that 10 minutes or whatever it is between the two picks, it goes really fast. And, the, you know, the anticipation, and um, it's, it's super fun. And as, as nice as Kansas City's was, we're going to have a better one. Well, you know what's fun? The Lions aren't the first pick or anywhere near the top because we're good now. We're going to need to be patient. <laughs> yeah. We'll be tailgating a lot before our pick. Yes. Just so everyone knows, they're 29. to us from, from Boston and said, you know, the Patriots have the uh, third pick, and that's a very rare place for them to be. And I said, oh, we're used to that. You know, no problem. We'll tell you how to act and how to behave. But, uh, yeah, we've got the 29th pick. So you're right. We're going to wait around a little while, and that's a, that's a very good thing. It is indeed, and uh, as you said, the dividends that are going to be paid are going to be huge in terms of uh, the image building. You know, we, we obsess about that. I don't know if we should be as sensitive to it as, as we have been in the, because we've come so far in 10 years, Terry. That's absolutely true, and there's a couple of things coming up before the draft. So in the next uh, couple of months, we've got, you know, we're going to send a team to the Final Four from Detroit. We've got a regional final at Little Caesars. And the winner of that tournament will go right to the final four. We've got opening day for the Tigers against the A's in uh, early April. That's a, 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 that should be a, a holiday. It is for me. Mm-hmm. So we've got a lot of great things happening that are going to continue to build the buzz for what we think will be one of the most exciting events ever to take place in our city. We are pumped. Me too. Indeed, we are. Thanks so much, Terry. Enjoy your time out in Vegas. Thank you very much, guys. And we promise not to ask any probing questions about what went on out there. <laughs> we hope you have a great weekend and enjoy the Super Bowl. Imagine how the Lions are going to look when they're there next year. Take care. We'll see you Monday.